I run across a book that I think deserves wide circulation, uh, that I think is worthy of a lot of people getting familiar with it. I know a couple years ago, that was the Benedict Option. I know a lot of people read that. Um, it's very influential. And uh, this morning, what I want to do is just uh, commend a book to you all, encourage you to read it, um, and give some encouragements and some challenges out of that book. Um, the book is Strange New World. It's by Carl Truman. The subtitle, I don't know if the subtitle's in there, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. If you're a 5K person, this is the book for you. If you're a marathon person, this is the book for you. And I think, do I have them both listed in there? <clears throat> the other one, the, the marathon one, is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So Truman wrote this first, The Marathon, and a lot of his colleagues and friends said, Carl, this is a really great book. More people need to read it, and can you write the version of it that's not a doorstop? And so that's what Strange New World is. So I'm talking about the 5K this morning, uh, this 5K book. Um, so it's called The uh, Strange New World, and I think that's, uh, the title is very helpful because it sets the stage. Truman sort of started out all this by asking, okay, now we have many people who are saying they're men, but they're saying they're a woman. And his question wasn't, okay, we know that's not right. That wasn't his question. His question was, how did we get here? How did we get here that that's commonly accepted by a lot of people as a perfectly rational thing to say? And so that's what he set out to address in this book. And so what it is, among other things, is he wants to challenge us that we, we started getting here a long time ago. So I think Obergefell was 2015, is that right? 2015 was the Supreme Court case legalizing gay marriage. What he wants to say is that, you know, it wasn't like that was the decisive moment, or it wasn't like uh, abortion in 1973 was a decisive moment. For maybe 300, maybe 350 years, there have been ideas percolating in Western society that have brought us to this moment. And if we're going to understand how to get out of this moment, we need to understand how we got here. And so that's what his book sets out to do. Um, and he goes through, he starts with romantic thinkers in the 18th century, and he brings it on to the present. I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow of the book. Um, but I do want to pull out two big ideas from the book and then uh, go to some of the recommendations that he has at the end of the book. Um, so again, it's understanding the times so that we know how to live. And we got to start by understanding how we got here. So two big ideas uh, that Truman lays out in the beginning of the book that he thinks are decisive for where we are and decisive for understanding where we are. Um, <clears throat> The first one is expressive individualism, and I think I have it there. I, I don't have the, those definitions. Could somebody just get up and read, Ben? Would you stand up and just read one of those definitions? Either one. I just tried to give several that different people give. The culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or, or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Charles Day. So that's sort of technical sounding. I think the best way to understand it is this language of authenticity, this language of who is the real me, right? And we hear this a lot. There's various expressions you can come up with. Maybe you can help me. Uh, you be you. 
Can anybody think of some others? Just shout a few out. Live your own truth. You be you. Follow your heart. Thank you. Okay. So this is expressive individualism. You look inside to find who the real you is, and then you live that out and express it to the world. That's a prevailing ideology that's going around. And I kid, people think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Dumbo. Remember Dumbo? He wants to be an elephant that can fly. I'm telling you, there's, that, that is in the genealogy of the trans movement. Does everybody see what I mean by that? An elephant that can fly, right? No, he wants to, that's who he is. He wants to be this elephant, and it doesn't matter physics, it doesn't matter biology, he's going to fly. That idea has been with us a long time. Frank Sinatra. What's the song? I did it my way. I don't know what year that came out. I'm going to assume it's sometime in the 60s. It's this idea that I don't care what culture says, I don't care what fam my family says, I don't care what tradition says, I don't care what anybody else says, I am going to follow my heart, I'm going to be, uh, be myself. I want to read a philosopher, the well-known philosopher, uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> she said this at a recent graduation where she was given an, an honorary doctorate. We are so many things all the time and I know it can be overwhelming figuring out who to be. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Now, I'm not dissing Taylor Swift, but she's perfectly articulating expressive individualism. It is entirely up to you who you're going to be. Figure out who you're going to be and do it. Here's another person. See if you can guess who said this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Let me read it one more time. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Anybody know who said it? Where's Matt Henderson? Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. So pop culture, high culture is this idea of it's up to you to define yourself and express that to the world. Now, one thing I want to say is some of what they're articulating, there's truth to that, right? We have to decide whether we'll follow God. We have to, there's things we do have to decide. But as Trevin Wack says, it all starts by looking in, then looking around, and then looking up. You look in to find out who you are, you look around to find out who's like you, and you look up to solicit divine help to be who you want to be. And the problem that happens often, and various people have pointed this out, is that sometimes this even infiltrates the church, where we understand God is there to help us be our true selves. Now, again, there's some nuggets, there's some kernels in there. But fundamentally, this idea of expressive individualism is a hopeless idea, and it's contrary to the way that God made us. Um, again, key to this is the idea that Society, church, religion, all kinds, of, all kinds of things out there are going to try to press you into a mold. And the truly heroic thing to do is to be yourself contrary to all of those things. So again, inside, uh, before you look anywhere else. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning about uh, expressive individualism is it's, it's also largely based on emotion. All right? How many people, everybody's heard the expression, love is love. Has everybody heard that? 
Love is love. Like, just let anybody love whoever. That's not really an argument. It's an emotional resonance. Right? They're not, they're not making, don't think too long about it. It's, a, it's an emotional statement. So it's largely based in emotions. Social media and all kinds of other things play into this, right? They, they give us the equipment and encourage us to find out who we are and express ourselves and put things together in those ways. I'll read this quote by Dallas Willard. A great part of the disaster of contemporary life lies in the fact that it is organized around feelings. People nearly always act on their feelings and think it only right. The will is then left at the mercy of circumstances that evoke feelings. In other words, people live emotionally, they don't live thoughtfully, and their will often has no role in their lives. So again, ultimately, this is about self-discovery, self-creation, self-expression in the, faces of, in the face of forces that want to make you conform. And it's no coincidence, Kelly mentioned this last night, it's no coincidence that we're seeing a lot of anxiety, depression, loneliness, because self-creation is an idol, and idols always break the heart. So that's the first idea, and I think it's pretty easy to comprehend. The second idea is a little bit more abstract, I think. Uh, it's, a, it's an idea called social imaginaries. And the main point here with this concept, and let's get somebody to read that. Somebody want to read one of those definitions? I think I have one or two or three. Somebody want to just stand up? Loud voice. There we go. Okay, so the point here is that people are not really as rational as we give them credit for being. Generally speaking, people tend to live out the way they live through their emotions, through their intuitions, through the way they imagine the world. They're not that reflective about why they think about what they think. It's a recognition that despite that worldview is a great conversation to have and that rational, rational conversations are great conversations to have, most people are just not that reflective about why they think the way they think. Uh, they come to the way they think by intuition, by feel. They absorb it from songs, movies, memes, symbols. It's a very unreflective process. I remember realizing this somewhere about 15 or 20 years ago on campus when you would talk to students that weren't believers and I would try to make rational points and rationality just no longer had purchase. It, it, it no, you, arguments didn't convince them. It wasn't helpful to speak logically. So again, the idea is that people have these ideas that inoculate them against the gospel. So, so Kelly brought this up last night, and I think this is really important um, to understand. And maybe one of the best ways that I can think of to illustrate it is in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a sermon to a large crowd of Jewish people who know the Bible, who have been shaped by the social imaginary of Scripture, of worship in the temple, of the annual church cycle. They know all of these things, and they've kind of absorbed them at an emotional level. So when Peter gets up and gives this message that essentially Jesus is the Messiah, 
there's not a lot of translation that, that has to happen, right? These are ideas and concepts they're familiar with, they understand, and a lot of them respond. We get, get 3,000 on one occasion and then 5,000 not long after that. Contrast that with Paul's encounter in Athens, right? To, to riff on what Kelly said last night, did Paul have any less of the Holy Spirit than Peter did? I, I think he had the same Holy Spirit, but he gets up and gives this speech at Athens, and he's, by the way, trying really hard to speak in terms that they'll understand, right? He's not using concepts and ideas that are um, from the Bible, <clears throat> primarily, terminology. Some believe. We get a name of like three or four. So was Paul deficient in the Holy Spirit? I don't think he was. I think there's a whole different set of ideas and a whole different set of, of a whole different social imaginary that inoculated them against being able to understand this gospel and grasp it and, and embrace it. Does this make sense? I think the, and the reason I think the social imaginary concept is so important is I think we're living in a post-Christian culture more and more where more and more people don't have the basic battery of concepts, things like sin. Kelly mentioned that, right? The concept of sin. You, you talk to people, they don't have that concept. They have psychological concepts, they have therapeutic concepts, and there is a greater distance in their ability to understand. What's the relevance here? I think we're living in a world where that's going to be our experience more and more. We do want to see people who are not from a Christian background of any kind uh, come into the faith. But I think it's going to be longer. I think it's going to be slower work. And I think we're going to have to be, like Paul, deliberate about how we do it. Does that make sense? I think it's a super important concept for understanding where we are culturally. I don't think this cultural trend is going to reverse quickly. I'm not a prophet, but I do think we're in for the long haul of being in a world where Christians are increasingly seen as bigoted, as mean-spirited, as contrary, working contrary to culture. I don't know that that's going to reverse. And I don't say that in a despairing way. I simply say, this is the place that God has put us. And so how do we live wisely in the time that God has put us? How do we respond wisely to this context? One other way that you can think about this social imaginary is imagine somebody from the Middle Ages, say 1300 in Europe. If we were to talk to them, they would have no ability to understand our world, particularly just even our religious world. Where, where was church? Well, it's at the parish church where, I've, you know, my folks were born, baptized, buried. This is where I was born. This is the only option on the table. All of us, even though we're committed where we are, we get to choose where we go to church. It's an entirely different world in terms of choice and all kinds of uh, concepts that are with that. Right, does the social imaginaries make sense? Is this kind of, does this kind of make sense? This is, I think, the world we're in, and so we have to understand it. So I want to shift gears and talk about some of the recommendations that Truman has about what we can do given the fact that we're in a very different world. And the first thing that he mentions is we need to admit that we're complicit. Okay, We are not somehow immune to the water that we've swimmed in. In other words, uh, the church is just as much in this culture of um, expressive individualism as many other people. Hopefully, if we're reading our Bibles well and we're doing discipleship well, we're critical and we have a critical distance from it. But we need to recognize that it's in us, too. And some examples of the way that, it, that expressive individualism might manifest for us. Judging worship or sermons by how we feel. 
alone. All right? we, we go in and out and we you know, judge things by our emotional experience. Assuming that it's God's job to make us happy. That that's his goal. That that's his uh, primary agenda. Of course, we define happiness in a particular way. Truman mentions this issue of choice. Again, it, it doesn't matter in America today what church you're in, but you chose it in many respects. And he says, given the fact that we've, ch- we've chosen, we need to make sure that our commitments aren't based in a, a kind of a consumer response. And again, I think that's something that resonates deeply with us as churches. We want to be planted. We want to be given. We want to sort of work against this idea that church is a consumer product. Um, Another example that he cites where the church can sometimes be complicit, and this is happening more and more. There was a a vineyard worship leader um, in 20, I can't remember uh, what year it was. I think it was 2018. Her name was Vicki Beeching. Anybody know who I'm talking about? She She was British. Vineyard worship leader, she came out as gay and didn't renounce any of her Christianity and said, you know, God accepts me. I think one example he gives here is how we fudge on our understanding of biblical ethics around sex when family members you know when people when people we know it it, it can be easy to remote relate emotionally to that but not to relate to what the commandments of scripture um, suggest so recognizing our complicity uh is the first thing or recognizing the possibility that we could be complicit uh the second thing is um learning from the ancient church so Truman points out that New Testament Christianity and for the first 200 years of the church, the church was in a very similar position to where we are now, meaning a misunderstood minority that was thought to be hateful to society, uh, that was thought to be maybe seditious, um, working against society, misunderstood. Um, We're going to be in a very similar position. And again, the point is not to be upset about that. The point is not to be angry about that. The point is to understand our circumstances. And what he points out about the church in the New Testament and in the, the centuries after that is what they did in response to their circumstances. There was all kinds of things that the early church was accused of. They were accused of incest because they called one another brother and sister and gave one another the holy kiss. They're accused of cannibalism because apparently they ate a baby. But there's all kinds of misunderstanding about Christian practices. So what he points out is that the, a number of things that they did. Number one is that they engaged with these, all of these things with respect. Right? They weren't mocking, but they said, hey, we, we want to talk about this. We're going to address as publicly as we can these charges. They regularly made the case that they were better citizens, better employers, better business owners, better workers, better families because of the faith they espoused, better members of the empire. They argued regularly that they were there for the common good, that their lives in the Roman Empire were there for the common good of the empire and brought more good to the empire than pagan religions or other things. Uh, there's, a, there's a great example of this, if you've never read it, the letter to Diognetus, in which he goes through and, and articulates all the ways in which Christians, very forcefully but very clearly and respectfully, trying to articulate the ways in which Christians were better citizens um, and were living for the common good. Um, this year, Kelly, we, we did, uh, through the year, we did the book of Daniel, and Kelly had a phrase that I think is a great phrase 
um, that I want to cite here. It's, it's when, when the emperor or when, for example, Daniel and his companions were made to eat the king's food, Daniel and his companions made a better offer, right? They said, no, we can't eat that. Listen, can we do this instead? And I think, I think it's a great phrase. We need to make a better offer to culture. They've got their gospels, the various gospels out there, the gospel of expressive individualism. We need to make a better offer by our words, by our lives, by our communities, by the way we contribute to society. Uh, and ultimately, I think it's important, again, to recognize that we're playing a long game here. Um, one of the differences between us and the early church is we're post-Christian. So those who are critical of Christianity in some ways are better informed than those first critics of Christianity because uh, Christianity has been a prevailing force in culture for a long time. Um, next, he talks about teaching the whole Bible, and I think this is really good, and I want to a little, little bit riff on something Ben said. But first, let me just explain it. We don't just need to teach to the hot-button issues. Does that make sense? Whatever the hot-button issues of the day are, homosexuality, uh, the transgender issue. Yes, we need to articulate where we stand on that. But we need to teach the entire counsel of God, not just the hot-button issues of the day. Because the hot-button issues of the day are just on the surface. Christian teaching that, that homosexuality is wrong isn't just based on two verses in the Bible, Old and New Testament. It's based on the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. It's woven into the fabric of the way God made everything. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the logic of all of Scripture, not just on sexual matters, but on everything. Because it basically, the Bible out-narrates all other narratives. Everybody get what I'm saying? There's all these narratives, again, the expressive individualism. Here's this story of, well, the meaning to life is to find yourself and express your true self and be your true self. You know what? There is a truth to that. There's a kernel of truth to that, but there's a much bigger truth that the Bible tells about that. And we need to be able to understand not just that homosexuality is wrong, but why it's wrong. And this is where I want to riff on what Ben said. I think it's so important for us to teach our children this because they're getting assailed by the emotional formation of movies, music, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is not to just withdraw from all that. The answer is to out-narrate all that with the much bigger story of Scripture. And so, again, we're doing it. We need to keep doing it. We need to know our Bibles better more deeply, more holistically, and we need to be able to communicate those things to our kids. Um, and when we do that, I think we'll be able to bring healthy, wise, generous gospel criticism to the culture. Again, I want to go back to Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Athens and point out what Paul does there. He first commends them for truths that are in their culture. And then he criticizes them. Does that make sense? There's a yes, and then there's a no. All right? Uh, and I think that that's a great model of what we're called to be able to do. Be able to recognize things that are true, things that are right, things that are... Because no, no um, ideas out there are entirely without some kernel of truth. But we need to show how the gospel fulfills them in a deeper and a broader way than even they understand. And as we do that, I think we can be encouraged that some 
will believe. And we will build. Maybe we're planting seed so that there is a forest in generations to come. And if that's the work God has called us to, that's a good thing. That's the work that God has called us to do. Um, Worship. So, again, Trevin Wax, back to this quote from Trevin Wax. We should, as he says, look up before we look inside. Uh, And he's talking about worship. He's talking about the proper orientation to life. He's talking about the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, What do we do with ourself? What do we do with our identity? There is a huge crisis of identity out there. And we know what to do. We offer ourselves to God, and that's how we find out who we are. Uh, The scripture makes it clear we don't know ourselves. You know, the task of finding your true self is an impossible task because we don't know ourselves. All right, the heart is tricky, deceptive above all things. Who can know it? We can't. Only God can. We're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. And our little selves, our little puny egos, um, must be out-narrated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? They have to be out-narrated by a bigger, truer story. Um, So again, we must look up before we look in. And when I think about worship, I'm going to give this challenge. I'm challenged personally to try to find ways to bring the Psalms more and more into worship. Because if you want to know what to do with your emotions, if you want to know what to do with your interior world, I think God gave us the Psalms to teach us what to do with that. They are the discipleship of our emotional world. Um, We are, this is important to note, emotional beings. And God doesn't want us to squash our emotions. All right, there is a uniqueness that God has created for each one of us and giftings and callings, but we can't find our identity in those things. And the Psalms and biblical worship reorient us and re-narrate us and show us what to do with all of that. One of the most powerful things about the Psalms is that they encourage us to be honest with God about all of our emotions. And then we get narrated into the image of the one whose heart they display. I believe the Psalms in their entirety give us a picture of the heart of our Lord and whose image we're being shaped. So biblical worship rescues us from the ego drama. Biblical worship, scripturally informed and shaped worship, rescues us from the ego drama and delivers us into this wonderful story that God is telling. Again, I, I quote this quote a lot, but I'm going to quote it again. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. You know, the little thrill that you get when you do a personality test, even if it's a Christian personality test, to find out who you are. I think he's, he's tapping into that. We, we don't go to God for the sake of our personality. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you're not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. All right, so we must go to him. Um, Next, community. This is one of the most encouraging to me um, because I think we're doing it. I think this is one of the the things we do well. Um, But uh, Truman just points out the fact that The Christian community must be the strongest community to which we belong. And that's going to be more and more true in the days to come. I don't think we're looking at 
uh, at early church persecution, but I do think we're looking at job losses for people who are in fields where their ideas will not allow, they may suffer for it, uh, maybe economic, economic things. Um, but we must be strong communities. And part of the gospel that we have is true belonging. Now, I think this is worth noting that one of the reasons the LGBT, etc. movement was successful is because they created community. They did it very well. All right. It's again, idolatrous community based around sin, but they did it very well. And we need to we need to be able to live out a glimpse of the community that God is creating for eternity on earth. Um, so helping shepherd people into making that transition from individualist, individualistic American consumer to the church being the strongest community to which you belong is what we do uh, and what we'll be called to do more and more as, as the days to come. Finally, I just want to uh, end with this I, again for me. This book is very helpful, and Truman is not shrill. He's not angry. He's not lamenting. He's not, you know, pulling out his hair. He's just saying, hey, guys, this is where we are. Uh, this is the field that God has called us to, and he wants to give encouragement to that. Kelly's message last night, I think, was partially hope, right? We, God is moving. He's using us. This is the field that he's given us to work, and we need to be able to work it well. Um, so Truman points out that pessimism and optimism are both temptations, right? Pessimism, oh, it's so terrible if we can only get back to this. Oh, I mean, you know, our gener- you know years ago, again, the, the golden age versus iron age idea. But optimism is also a temptation. Optimism that says, oh, well, it'll all work out. We don't, you know, it's fine. It, 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 something will come along. That, that's also a temptation. And the Christian virtue that opposes both temptations is the virtue of hope. And remember, this is a virtue. This is something that the Spirit is shaping in us as a fruit of the Spirit to be a people who can look at the world around us and go, God is with us. He's working through us. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, but he's doing things through us. The virtue of hope is exhibited in Abraham, who's one guy with one woman, and they haven't had the kid yet. And yet here we are thousands of years later, recipients of the blessings that come from that man who walked in hope. Right. Um, I know that the, the other churches just went through Revelation and Revelation is a comedy. Right. In the classical sense, not not comedy funny, but something that looks awful to begin with, but ends with a happy ending. We're living a comedy. We're living something that we know the ending to. And so uh, we're called to that virtue of hope. I really do believe that we are living through, have been living through, the end of one world and the beginning of another world. And it's a, the end of the world where Christianity was the prevailing uh, cultural influence to one in which that is not the case. But we should live into that world with hope. Right, just like the early church did in their context. Uh, so I want to close, and then maybe if there's any questions about the book, um, but I want to close with this quote from G.K. Chesterton. At least five times, therefore, with the Arian and Albigensian and the humanistic skeptic after Voltaire and after Darwin, at least five times the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. Amen? Amen.
All right, well, uh, real quick, uh, any questions about the books or any of the things I share? Um, Yeah, so uh, I, I guess I'm referring to many people have probably heard stories about Christians that you know. Yeah, the question was the question about family. Um, if I could elaborate more on that question of these issues. So how many people have heard a story, you know a story personally, of somebody who they were faithful Christians, going to good church, and their kids have come out as gay or trans or something like that recently? I, I think it's getting more and more common. And uh, being able to know how to respond to those situations with love, but with adherence to a biblical picture, um, I think is going to be more and more what we walk people through. Um, and I think especially at those times when the love is love sort of emotional rhetoric is in the air, it's so easy to just get fuzzy in your thinking. Uh, so I think that's what I was referring to is the way in which we can respond emotionally to those circumstances. And again, I think it takes a lot of pastoral insight and discipleship and wisdom to know how to relate to those situations with love and firmness. But we'll be doing that more and more uh, or helping people do that more and more in the days to come. Bill. One of the trends that I see in Yeah, did everybody hear that? So that he was just saying Marxism, he sees socialism is becoming more and more popular, especially with young people. Um, what's going on there? Again, I think that it's more about the social imaginary. In other words, it's hip. It's, it's, the, it's the trendy thing. I don't think there's a lot of thought about it or investigation as to how that's worked out on the ground historically. Um, and... I think the work that we have to do there to people who want to, to want to discuss it is to be able to say, well, why do you, you know, to ask questions about why do you think that? And, 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 and you know, so to be able to engage with those, those ideas, but um, that that's the hard work. Very rarely, I think, do you encounter young people who are informed about such matters. In other words, they have ideas. They don't know where the ideas came from. They don't know whether those ideas have been tried out in real life and what the consequences of those ideas for. And again, so, I, so being able to, to help people be a little reflective about where their ideas came, come from. Um, but I, I think that phenomenon is entirely, well, I think it's also worth recognizing. Can everybody see how at one level, socialism, oh, everybody shares? It's great. Like, I think we have to recognize that there are certain things in there that would, why that would appeal. Um, and I, again, I think Marxism borrows that from Christianity. I think it borrows that from the scriptural vision, but it, it isolates it from all kinds of other things. So I don't know if I've answered your question. I, I think the phenomena is an emotional, culturally popular thing. 
And uh, I think patient engagement with, you know, here's what I would say, not just sneeringly deriding Marxism as stupid, but discussing and engaging and engaging, what, you know, what, is this, what kind of vision does the scripture lay out and how is that different? So does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and then Ben. How would you, I, I asked this question because I encountered a girl recently who just said, I've never heard the gospel before, even college. How would, and it kind of took me back, like how to start from the beginning and tell the story to someone who's never heard it, didn't have like those terms in their head, like, Jesus and God and all these things. Not that I'm asking, uh, how would you, in like a few minutes, maybe, like, just tell the story? Did everybody hear that question? So I'm going to pose that to everybody first. So the question is, he had an opportunity, what a great opportunity. Somebody said, I've never heard the gospel. What is the gospel? How would you, in non-religious terms, express the gospel? And I actually, I think everybody should... Do that exercise regularly. I mean, before I say anything, you should stop and think, how would I relate that story? And this is, again, where I would say we need to have the Bible. We need to know the Bible beginning to end, not John 316 alone, but the whole thing and how John 316 fits into that. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I were just to impulsively go, I would say we were created for, we were created in delight. We were created for fellowship. We were created for fellowship with God and with other people. Creation is good. And we decided that we didn't want to trust God, that he wasn't out for our good. And uh, a lot of religion, a lot of politics, a lot of life comes from our mistrust of God. And God has patiently worked to make a way for us to come back into harmony, unity, fellowship with him. But that involves dealing with dealing with what we've done to mess up his world and to mess up our own lives. And finally, and again, you're, you're saying the two minute version. Finally, finally, he worked through history and worked through a particular people in history. Uh, and he himself became one of us to give us a picture of the life that we were meant to live and to invite us into that life and to make a way for that to be possible. I mean, yeah. I, so, again, I would I would encourage everybody, maybe regularly. That's a it's a great practice. How would you communicate the gospel to somebody in non-religious terms or in terms that don't just, you know, mean, mean nothing to them anymore? Yeah. Ben. Did everybody hear that? In the political realm, the terms of engagement on these ideas are very about power plays, about, you know, about getting social media lights, etc. My first response is I think we need to study Daniel. I think we need to study the Lord himself. I think we need to study Paul and how they engage. They did engage. Paul, I mean, Paul gets to speak to... 
you know, leaders everywhere. How did Paul do it? Uh, and he, again, he didn't get pulled into the world of, we cannot, we cannot present the gospel. We cannot articulate our vision through the world's means, through power plays, through manipulation, through shrillness and anger and resentment. And so I think we go back again and again. Again, it's not quietism. It's not withdrawal. Um, but it is doing so, you know, I think you studied Paul's speech to Felix. Paul doesn't hedge. He's respectful. He's firm. And uh, he doesn't give up. You know, Paul, you're crazy. You're going to talk me into this that quick? He said, yep, I I would if I could. You know, so I don't know. I I think that's an important question. And I think I think we have to go back again and again and ask the question, if you don't have power, what do you have? You have influence. And I think that's what Daniel and his companions had. Uh, I think that's what Paul tried to have. And I think that's what we're called to, to try to have is influence and bring true blessing to society at every turn that we can. Um, is that helpful? Yeah. Kelly. Would you plug the lecture that's next month? Oh, yes. Uh, before I quit. Yeah, we'll take one more. If, if there's another question, I'll do Matt and then. Uh, in there, uh, so Carl Truman is going to be speaking at the C.S. Lewis House on February 14th. So that could be the shortcut. Like if you don't want to read the book, you go to lecture, ask a few questions. That's a good opportunity. Or read the book and go, and then maybe you'd have more informed questions. Don't ask any of those. This is more of a comment uh, questions. Matt. Thank you. That was awesome. My question is, I'm Yes. So did everybody hear that? Was this Chad Grissom's version of his book or how much was it? Yeah. What's encouraging about this book is a lot of what I said is precisely what he said. Okay. Especially in the recommendations. He may have put them in slightly different terms. He's in a different Christian communion, but um, it is very much a lot of what he said. So that, that is in part what was so encouraging is, oh man, this is what we're trying to do. Um, so, and in, then in terms of what I shared, I would say I really shared chapter one and chapter nine. I, ch- I essentially shared the first chapter, last chapter with my comments mixed in. All right. Uh, I think we're going to have a 10. Yeah, we'll do one more. Yeah, so his question was about sin, and we live in a post-sin world. And again, let me reiterate what I mean by that. People think in terms of mistakes. They pe- people think in terms of trauma. People think, but they don't think in terms of, I am guilty of sin before a holy God, and he is angry at me. Um, and how do we engage that? And again, I think this is where... I think this is where we have to do the slow work and, and acknowledge, okay, there's something to be said for things like trauma. There, I mean, those, those things are all legitimate, but I think we have to do the work of does trauma explain Hitler? Does trauma explain Jim Crow racism in the South? The, how do we account for terrible human evil? Uh, does 
does the categories in which most people think and talk engage that? And I, and it, I mean, I, I think it, they're woefully inadequate, right? Um, so, but again, I think, that's, I think that's slow work. And recognizing when we say sin, I think sometimes the best evangelism or the best apologetics is simple, straightforward presentation of the Bible's view of things. Does that make sense? They, they don't think in terms of sin. Well, uh, let's just talk about what that means in biblical terms. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's scratching where you're itching, but um, I think we have to, I think Christianity, as I said, out narrates everything else. And another way of putting that is it accounts for the most of life, right? In a view that the problem with most people is they make mistakes, they've been harmed, that doesn't account for the most of human life. There's some truth in it, but it doesn't give us the fullest picture. And again, I think that's what Christianity does is give us the fullest picture of all the data out there. Uh, human evil and human good on the other side of it. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. All right. Um, we'll take, oh, there you go.